Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. And I'm joined by my co-host, Amba Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have an amazing show ready to go. In our first segment, we'll talk about the uncertainty that is engulfing the New York City public schools as the prospect of hundreds of millions of dollars in budget cuts filters down to the local school level. We'll speak with Dr. Caliris Salas Rodriguez, the Manhattan representative on the panel for education policy, and Paul Trust, a teacher and parent of three public school children whose job was eliminated due to budget cuts. Early voting begins this Saturday for a second round of Democratic primaries on August 23rd. This round features congressional and state Senate races. In our second segment, we'll get an update from John on the latest from some of the key races taking place in the city. And in our final segment, we'll look at the surge of asylum seekers being bused from Texas to New York City as a part of a political stunt by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. But first, we turn to New York City's public schools. There are roughly 1,800 of them, and they serve 1 million students. Students are currently on summer break, but they will be going back to school in about a month. And they they are slated to, when they uh, return, uh, unfortunately, their schools right now don't know what their annual budget will be and whether they will have to lay off staff. The, uh, The matter appeared to be settled on June 13th when Mayor Eric Adams pushed the city's annual budget through city council with hundreds of millions of dollars in cuts to school funding. However, on Friday, New York Supreme Court Justice Lyle Frank ruled that the process upon which the Department of Education's budget was established actually violated state law and allowed City Hall a new vote. Earlier today, the mayor appealed the decision to a higher court. To help make sense of what's going on, we're joined by two guests. Paul Trust was one of the four plaintiffs in the lawsuit. He is the father of three New York City public school students. He also has taught music at PS39 in Park Slope for 17 years now, but is looking to find a position at another school amid the uncertainty of how the situation will be resolved. And we're also joined by Caliris Salas-Ramirez, also a New York City public school parent and Manhattan representative on the panel for education policy, New York City's school board. Welcome, both of you, to WBAI Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Right. And, Paul, we'll start with you. As one of the four plaintiffs on the lawsuit that uh, uh, prevailed on Friday, or at least prevailed in the uh, uh, Judge Frank's uh, court, uh, your reaction uh, to the judge's ruling and the mayor's decision to appeal that ruling today? Um, So we are... Let me start over. Our celebration was a bit short-lived because it was soon after the ruling that we received word that the mayor would be, in fact, uh, appealing that ruling. Um, I believe today is slated to be the day that he, they are submitting paperwork. If you have heard that they've actually done that, that's more than I know. Um, and, you know, it was big, a big disappointment for us because the mayor only the night before had said that he would abide by the judge's ruling. So, I had hoped to take the mayor at his word that he would uh, 
hear what Judge Frank said, and that we can all try to move on and get the schools the budget they deserve and get things rolling with the month we have left to get school started. But it seems like he has another thing in mind and is now uh, holding up that process. And Calaris, um, welcome. And, and could you tell us a little bit about your reaction to Judge Frank's ruling and the mayor deciding to pursue an appeal? Also, can you explain what the PEP is and why Adams administration's failure to consult with it before push- pushing budget cuts to the DOE through city council was a big mistake? I know that's a lot. Sure. I'm going to start with the latter. So the panel for educational policy under state law is the New York City School Board. And what we do, we're a group of 15 people. Right now we're 13. We have some positions that need to be filled. But we're a group of 15 people, nine of which are appointed by the mayor because New York City Department of Education is under mayoral control. So the mayor has more appointees than any other elected official. And then there's one representative from each borough president's office. And so myself, I was appointed by Mark Levine um, to represent his office. And then we have one elected member, which currently Tom Shepard um, is the elected member. He's elected by Community Education Council presidents. Um, um, and so that is a two-year term. He just got reelected um, by 23 out of 32 CEC presidents. Uh, and so we have to vote on contracts. We have to vote on utilization of school buildings. So if there are any co-locations with charter schools, uh, we also have to vote on any amendment to any regulation, chancellor's regulations, the way that we, that we govern the New York City public schools. In that, there's a law called 2590G that was violated by the city because we also have to see the budget of the Department of Education before it goes to city council. So this lawsuit was based on a procedural, it's a procedural lawsuit. Um, we were supposed to see that budget. There was enough time for us to see the budget. So we had a, we had a slated meeting for June, for June 23rd, which is before the deadline of when the budget needs to be voted on by city council, which is June 30th. Um, Some of us had already known and acknowledged that the mayor was going to cut this money from our public school. So four people voted no, even though the chancellor explained to us that this was just a procedural vote that city council had already voted on the budget on June 13th. But on June 23rd, several of us um, voted no because we knew that this budget was not suitable to meet the needs of our New York City public school students and for us to be able to maintain our teachers in the workforce. Right. And just to follow up here, um, we have this situation where uh, the PEP, as you said, has uh, a majority appointed by the mayor and he essentially, uh, which can essentially rubber stamp whatever he wants to do. And, And he ignored his own rubber stamp and now is gotten tangled up uh, in the courts, and and, and 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 of course, the reason he skipped ahead of the whole process in early June, he was trying to bum rush the city council into approving these uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in cuts before uh, public uh, opposition could coalesce. And a, a lot of the city council members later expressed regrets that they had been or allowed themselves to be rushed into this. So can you just talk a little bit about that, about how kind of his brilliant plan to bum rush the the city council has now backfired because he forgot about you guys, even though he has full control over, 
over that board. He does have control because he has more members that he appointed. However, if you talk to some folks, those of us that are representing the borough president's offices will tell you that we have made some historic moves in the last couple of months. We have voted down several contracts that we felt weren't um, suitable, that were too large. Um, We've questioned the formula, the fair student funding formula, which is what's used to allocate money to public schools. So two-thirds of public school budgets are based on this fair student funding formula that was created during the Bloomberg administration by Joel Klein. Um, we've questioned that and whether that's equitable, for, particularly in our neighborhoods where we have a large population of Black, Latino, and poor students. Um, so this this Paddle for Educational Policy is ready to like dig in and to look at the structures that are in place so that it is what he claims he wants, which is mayoral accountability. And so we are holding him accountable. We are dismayed because there are city council members that definitely felt like they didn't understand the budget, that they weren't briefed enough, that numbers have been um not been tra- the numbers haven't been transparent and so in turn we are asking mayor adams to reinstate at least 469 million dollars back to the department of education which is what comptroller brad lander has determined are going to be are the significant budget cuts to our schools so that we ensure that our schools are fully functioning come september 8th And what has the mayor's rationale for these cuts been? Also, how much money are we talking about here? The mayor says $215 million, but city comptroller Brad Lander says the $469 million, you know, that you just mentioned, you say the total is $1.7 billion. Billion. Right. So we have there's an organization called Class Size Matters, um, led by Lainey Hameson, who is the OG <laughs> in understanding sure. all things education. Um, and so based on calculations from the galaxy budgets, which are, the, again, the total picture of what's happening in our public schools, uh, her initial calculation was $1.7 billion. That has since then been revised to $1.42 billion. However, the comptroller has calculated $469 million that are specific to the fair student funding formula that goes directly into our schools. So that is our base. Um, And that's what we're starting with. The mayor asserts that we have decreased enrollment um, in our public schools, which has happened. It's also happened across the country. Um, But because of that decreased enrollment and because of retirements in um, teacher population, that fair student funding formula received a $25 cut per student. Um, And although that might not sound like a lot, $25 when you have hundreds of students uh, equates into a significant amount of money. Um, We do believe that the mayor is um, create or this administration, it wants to say that we had hundreds of thousands of students leave the system. Um, Unfortunately, what we're hearing on the ground is that our schools have a robust register um, and that some schools are actually seeing higher registers. Uh, Initially, Dan, why? The first deputy chancellor had stated that if schools were to appeal based because based on the fact that they had higher enrollment, those appeals would be approved. At this point, those appeals have yet to be approved. And so we're concerned that the Department of Education is strategically uh, under-resourcing our schools um, as this administration has significant alignment with the privatization of public education. Uh, and so 
So in turn, we want we challenge that assertion assertion that our children are leaving our public school systems. We know that children were homeschooled last year. We know that children went left to charters because charters offered a remote option for students. Again, what we're seeing from what we're hearing from our principals is that they have students enrolled in their schools, that they that a lot of schools are over enrolled and that they need these resources in order to thrive. And so we don't adhere to our the mayor's narrative that we've lost hundreds of thousands of students, that we've had a, a small dip in register. Yes, that is as significant uh, to having to cut our budgets this drastically. Absolutely not. Right. And uh, speaking of the mayor's narrative, uh, we, we have a clip here we want to play in a, in a minute uh, from a, a confrontation or a, a, an encounter that happened yesterday, I believe between a uh, local uh, uh, activist, uh, Marilyn Mendoza, uh, with uh, Make the Road New York. Uh, She encountered the mayor and uh, started to ask him uh, what he was going to do to restore the $469 million in cuts. And uh, the conversation uh, took an interesting turn as it uh, unfolded. I've been the public school system, and ever since I've been little, you know, I've been hearing about budget cuts. And that's like a long time now. So we need 469 million or more to be fully funded. Can you do one thing for me? Yes. Pray with me, okay? To make sure this is a safe city. Yes. And make sure that we do the best for our children and families, okay? Because we need a lot of prayer. Definitely. And I'm a big believer of praying Mm -hmm. and faith and making sure my faith, I'm Catholic. Mm -hmm. So I know that Jesus fought so much for most needed so and so true. so true you and know. you know what if you if you have a close uh relationship with god god would tell you my heart is pure and i'm gonna be the best for this city well Keep i me hope in your so. prayers, okay i hope so hope you'll do the best for our students so uh any reactions to that do the do the schools have a prayer of getting their money back paul um i i would yeah i'd like to speak to that i mean uh, last I checked, uh, telling the truth is an important part of, of religion. And the, uh, the fact he said on Thursday that he would abide by the judge's ruling and then appealed the next day doesn't exactly line with what I consider to be the truth. Um, I believe that, um, uh, I, I, <laughs> well, um, what we're trying to fight for our children, uh, this is not right sizing. This is not reflecting a smaller enrollment. These cuts are taking a knife to the heart of arts programs, of guidance counselors, of social workers, of the essential uh, the tools that schools have to help make sure students get a well-rounded education and thrive. So what I am praying that he will, uh, you know, do what's right by our schools as well. I just don't know what he's praying to because what he's doing is counter to that. It's counter to uh, keeping our streets safe. My wife does is an art teacher and she lost her summer programming. So that means that her at-risk students who go to a school that's neighboring the school he went to in Jamaica, Queens, um, is are, are now have lost their ability to take summer classes. That's more kids on the street with nothing to do. How does that keep our city safe? And how does it get people to return to schools? I teach in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Are people going to come back from their summer homes to a school that no longer has a music programming? So he's doing everything that's counterintuitive to what he says he's doing. But I am praying he'll make the right choice. 
Right. And I think that most people who spend time in our, our city are already feeling the impacts of, of, of this budget. Um, as you say, uh, in addition to with schools, uh, with the pools, not enough lifeguards with the trash, there's rats everywhere. You can't ignore it. Um, but so if, if these, uh, cuts are really carried out, talk more about the impacts, um, that we'll see. Sure. I mean, and it's just from a personal perspective. Uh, my school lost its music programming. The school where my daughters go, uh, they've lost their music programming. Uh, where my youngest daughter goes, she lost the guidance counselor. We're new to the neighborhood. She relied on this guidance counselor to help her make the transition and deal with uh, some issues she was having with students and walk her through it. It's essential to have the socio-emotional support. We are still in a pandemic. Just because he says it's done doesn't mean magically it's done. Um, there are students that have uh, social emotional needs based off of the pandemic and um yeah so there, it's just i'm just i'm getting hit from it as a father uh for my wife's school and for my school so it, these uh, these cuts uh, the the narrative that these are minuscule cuts is just not true right and, and and paul i know you wouldn't want to make this whole thing about yourself but you're a 17 year music teacher at your school and and you're facing having to go look for a position uh, somewhere else in the school district because of the budget cuts at the school you've served for so many years. And can you talk a little bit about that and the reaction of your students to the prospects that you won't uh, be there this next year? Sure. Just for clarification, I've been a teacher for uh, 17 years. I've been at the school for 13 years. Uh, I started at the high school level and I then moved to the elementary. Um, so, yeah, I have to tell you what helped uh, motivate me to get in this fight was the conversation with my students that, you know, I'm, it doesn't look like I'm going to be here next year. And it looks like you might not have music program next year. And there was just the silence. There were tears. There were hugs. And I just knew at that point that I couldn't take the standing down, that this is not this is not right, that the students need these programs to thrive and to have a well-rounded education. And I needed to do what was right by my children. Uh, that's not just my own children, but also the children that I teach. Um, I have to also add that I did accept uh, a new position. I'm going to be teaching at a high school uh, in Brownsville, and I'm looking forward to uh, taking a program and, uh, you know, elevating the students there. So I'm going to continue doing what I love. I just It's just unfortunate that because of the mayor's decision, I won't be able to continue that at the school community I've been a part of for, for so long. And Kaliris, uh can you talk a little, just elaborate a little bit more on the aftermath of the pandemic or, or where we are in the pandemic in the two years of uh, of disruption uh, that took place and what what it means that these uh, budget cuts are, are looming over the schools and if they take place and yeah you can just relate that to totally. what we've been through before this started. So it's budget cuts in terms of personnel, like that results in personnel leaving our school communities. Again, these are teachers that have been with our students for multiple years and during a time that was super traumatic for them, where I think teachers have been really intentional about building relationships with students and helping them feel confident in terms of their growth and progress. Uh, and now we're ripping them from that stability uh, and bringing in other people. So what ends up happening is that those teachers that don't get hired end up 
getting put in what's called the absent teacher reserve pool, which we have also moved to those teachers being in different schools. So you're taking teachers that have established relationships with the school community that the principal hired, that knows the students, and you're replacing them with folks that may or may not be there for too long. And so that in turn results in a disruption in instruction in our schools and in our classrooms and for our children. We have to talk about what this pandemic has done in terms of instructional loss for our students. And while I will never say that our students have suffered with what some people claim is learning loss, I will say that they have not been receiving normal instruction for the last two years. Um, and so in turn, by having this turnover in staff, they don't have the support services uh, in addition to be able to continue in their studies. I will also say that globally, we have to look at the contracts that we are approving at the Panel for Educational Policy. Those contracts are not as large for support systems as they were before. Uh, and so in turn, we're hearing that restorative justice programs are being cut across the city. We've heard that implicit bias training is being cut across the city. And one of the things that we are are seeing that it's a little bit disturbing is that we're seeing an increase in the hiring of school safety agents way more than what we need to replace the folks that we that left the system during the pandemic and so in turn we're seeing higher policing in our schools and less in terms of emotional support that our students have a dire need for during this pandemic. Um, and now we've also have to worry about the introduction of monkeypox in our communities and how we're going to support students and families through a second pandemic and a, a second emergency declaration of public health in our communities. So this all adds up. Um, and while some folks might think that because of the mayor's narrative, we do have to decrease the budget of the Department of Education, that that is absolutely false. We need to come from a place of abundance and make sure that our students have everything that they need, especially since we have the money. If we didn't have the money, that was different. But we have the money. We have these reserves. We have money that was not used last year that can be rolled over um, to restore these cuts. And that's what we're asking for. We have the money. That's mind boggling. Um, so, Claris, uh, just talk briefly about sort of mayoral control and whether or not you think it's time to move away from this concentration of power in one person's hands. And there I say what a new governance system could look like. Whew, that's been a long conversation. Um, we are grateful that mayoral control was only extended for two years uh, versus four, which was what was being entertained for a while. Um, I will say that some folks come to me and they're like, well, if we don't have mayoral control, you wouldn't have your seat. And I say, if I have to run um, to be on the school board the same way that I ran to be the president of the Community Education Council for District 4, that's what I'll have to do. Um, and so I firmly believe that we need a more democratic structure to understand what's happening at, uh, in our schools. Folks are on the ground. Unfortunately, um, what I'm observing at this level is that a lot of the folks that are on the panel for educational policy are not as close to the education system in order to understand the impact that these um, budget cuts have on our schools or how he, these different policies 
impact the learning outcomes of our school communities. Um, so we are looking to continue to advocate to end mayoral control. There is a coalition, the coalition, you can look it up, um, end mayoral control now or the coalition to finally end mayoral control. And so we hope to have a robust campaign in the next year and a half. So we can continue to advocate within our legislature, legislators at the, at the level of assembly and the level of the Senate to end mayoral control and implement uh, structures that are community driven. Were school boards perfect? No, they weren't perfect. We saw some stuff that we didn't want to see, but we can legislate for there to be community-driven governance structures so that communities then have the ability to make sure that the needs are met of their communities. Right. And uh, just uh, one more thing we want to hit on before we have to wrap up here, which is uh, which kind of lingers in the background, uh, which is the role uh, of charter schools, these uh, privately managed uh, entities that receive public funds that have grown steadily uh, here in New York over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, Is it reasonable to think that a part of what maybe Adams is up to here is not just being uh, sort of parsimonious with the public purse, but is destabilizing the schools and making charter schools more attractive. If you don't have art and music programs, if, if you're missing key personnel, all of a sudden schools that have that look uh, more attractive. And I will note uh, Adams, there was a super PAC that supported him during his mayoral campaign that spent millions of dollars supporting him. Uh, that super PAC itself is funded by some of the richest people in New York. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg was a big backer of charter schools and uh, Adams always brags about how he regularly talks with Bloomberg and consults with him. So uh, your thoughts on this, I mean, obviously we can't know for sure at this point, but is it something we should be thinking about in relation to everything else that's going on here? Yeah, I think I mentioned this previously. This needs to be at the top of our minds right now. I don't think it's just something we should be thinking about. And maybe I think that's what we're seeing happen in real time um, right in front of us. Um, I You underfund public schools so that parents have to look for other options. Um, and, you know, Mayor Bloomberg was one that this summer donated $50 million for uh, charter schools to have their own summer rising. They called it summer boost. Um, he's also donated hundreds of millions of dollars to Success Academy um, and other charter schools in order to support uh, though the funding for those schools. We're seeing it left and right. And so unfortunately, I do think that um, and, and at times Chancellor Banks has said this charter school is doing better than our public schools. Um, I've been in many spaces where charters have been glorified in this administration. And so unfortunately, I do think this is part of the plan. I do think that we need to push back and I think we need to ensure that the one public service that can actually ensure social mobility and care for our communities be fully funded and in fact have abundance of resources because it focuses on the needs of our children and our families. Right. And just one more thing to mention about charter schools, because people will be like, well, at least if they have resources. That's great. But uh, the way a lot of these charter school networks uh, have operated over the years is essentially they they take they keep their best students and then the students that are having academic troubles or behavioral troubles are uh, 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 kicked out of the charter school and sent back to the public schools. I think this process is called creaming, where they kind of take the, the the cream of the crop 
and, and, and sort of boost their own performance metrics, but then dump all the students who they can't or won't help back on these uh, underfunded public schools that they've themselves yeah. have, have set up to fail. Yeah. And in fact, folks don't know, but even the money that is allotted to our public schools, again, based on enrollment, if the school doesn't meet those enrollment um, goals, then what happens is that that money needs to be sent back to the city by October 31st. And so what happens is that charter schools tend to start a little bit earlier than our public schools um, and do different types of screening processes with children. Um, and they keep them until October 31st. And then on November 1st, children are then encouraged um, or pushed out of those charter schools. And in turn, public schools must, by law, enroll these children, as well as provide mandated services for them. Um, and But the public school doesn't have the funding because that cutoff period is on October 31st. And that's why it's so important for us to continue to fight for this money and for this money to come into our public schools in the next couple of weeks, because our principals in our schools need this money in order to be able to sustain their school communities. Some folks have talked about there's the budget modification that typically happens in November. November is too late. We need to hold Mayor Adams accountable. We need to hold city council accountable so that these funds are fully restored or expanded into our public schools because we do know we have more than $469 million available to restore these cuts. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now, but this is a story we will continue to follow Thank you so much, uh, Clarice Salas Ramirez and Paul Trust, uh, for joining us uh, this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so you. much for having us. Bye, everybody. You bet. All right, we'll be back after this short break.
Tool Loves by Archie Shep, Raw Poetic, and Damu the Fudge Monk. Archie Shep will be playing with others in an avant-garde ensemble for free in Tompkins Square Park on August 28th. I highly suggest you check that out. Um, City Parks Foundation for more information. Um, I am Amba Gargarian, and you are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. I'm joined by my by my co-host, John Tarleton. And in our second segment, we're going to actually hear a bit from John about the upcoming state and national legislative elections. John is the editor-in-chief of The Independent and a keen observer of electoral politics, which he took recent interest in uh, when he saw things shifting uh, in, uh, with some, it's maybe a more progressive tilt in New York. So tell us a little bit about what's, what's going on. Yeah, so we have a second round of uh, Democratic primaries on August 23rd here in, in New York. They'll be for con- uh, congressional and state Senate seats. Uh, this is a product of uh, the mayhem earlier this spring around redistricting uh, when uh, the New York Court of Appeals, the highest court in the state, uh, intervened at the last minute and declared uh, that uh, the redistricting of uh, New York's 26 congressional districts and its 63 state Senate districts uh, had been uh, unconstitutional, uh, that they had been gerrymandered. And so we had the first round of primaries on uh, on June 28th uh, for state assembly and for statewide offices. Now we have the second round for these uh, seats that were uh, declared to be uh, gerrymandered. And then uh, the seats were hastily redrawn by uh, a special appointee. Uh, so that's kind of how we we got to a place where we're going to have the second round of primaries in the middle of August, which uh, isn't really the ideal time to do it, but that's the way it's going to be. And uh, oh, it's because it's a redistricting year. There's definitely some seats that all of a sudden have been uh, 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 turned upside down. Uh, some races we're uh, follow, following closely. Uh, there's a, a whole new congressional seat uh, that was created in Lower Manhattan below 14th Street. That's us. Uh, also uh, crosses over into Brooklyn Heights, downtown Brooklyn, Park Slope, and Sunset Park. Um, that's a, a wide open race. And, and what happens in, in, often in New York uh, and in other states is when, once somebody wins a seat, they can often hold it for many years, 20, 30 years. So this race for an uh, open uh, new seat in lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn uh, the winner could be there for decades. I wish our, our system was a little bit more um, uh, flexible, but that's how it often goes. Right now, there's three leading candidates for that race. Uh, uh, Assemblywoman uh, Yulene New, progressive firebrand, who's represented Chinatown in the state assembly. Um, also, uh, Carlina Rivera, uh, a city council member from the Lower East Side. And uh, uh, Dan Goldman, uh, he was a prosecutor in Trump's first uh, impeachment, uh, much beloved by some uh, resistance liberals, also the heir to uh, Levi Strauss' fortune. He's spending uh, millions of dollars on his own behalf. Um, Carlina Rivera has gotten support for some of the more establishment-friendly unions and big real estate interests. And uh, Yulene uh, Neo has been, is, is the endorsee of the Working Families Party, also got big endorsement yesterday from Jamani Williams. So definitely uh, parts of the kind of progressive left in New York city have uh, really begun to consolidate around Eileen. So be interesting to see uh, how that works out. Uh, there's other candidates in the race, uh, Mondaire Jones, uh, a strange story. He was 
he's the incumbent congressman up in uh, Westchester and Rockland County who vacated his seat to come down to New York to run uh, because of some of the machinations around uh, redistricting. Uh, Bill de Blasio was in the race at one point. He dropped out after polls showed he had a negative 46 uh, favorability rating that really nobody wanted to see any more of him. And he uh, took the hint and and left. Um, uh, another big race, it, it, Congressional District 12. We have two 30-year incumbents uh, because of the way the lines are redrawn are now in the same district, Gerald Nadler, Carolyn Maloney. Um, hard to say there's a big difference between them ideologically. Maloney has represented the east side uh, and Nadler the west side for decades. Uh, we'll see where that ends up. And uh, one other and two other races of note uh, just north of the city, uh, uh, Jamal Bowman, one of the members of the squad, is up for re-election. His seat was redrawn in a way that he lost a, a big chunk of the Bronx that he was representing, and his district kind of migrated further north. Uh, he's facing a conservative Democratic challenger. Uh, I mean, it's the favorite uh, as the incumbent, but there's definitely a lot of forces that would like to take him down. Uh, two years ago, he defeated Elliot Engel, um, one of the staunchest supporters of Israel in Congress and also just an all-around uh, tool of the military-industrial complex. So uh, Bowman's victory was huge two years ago. He's going to try to establish that he can uh, get reelected and then also a race up in uh, District 17 with uh, Alessandra Biaggi uh, challenging Sean Patrick Maloney, uh, who is an, <laughs> a very close friend of, of Wall Street and it plays a key role in the Democratic Party apparatus in, in terms of raising money from Wall Street to spread to candidates uh, all over the country. Um, but anyway, we continue to follow this and uh, we look forward to uh, being able to broadcast live on the 23rd when they, these races uh, we'll come to their conclusion and we'll um, have a show that night where we can talk about it more. And um, anyway, it's, uh, you know, if you find any of these candidates interesting, you can read up more about them, maybe get involved. You know, definitely, I mean, electoral politics can be a slog, but, you know, it, it does make a difference. It all matters, both what people do outside of electoral politics, inside the inside game also uh, matters too. And, uh, Look forward to hearing in our next segment about some people who are really uh, working from the outside to try to uh, bring some justice to uh, our uh, immigrant uh, system. That's right. Thanks so much for the update, John. It's always good to to get a little uh, uh, John info lesson, right? Um, so we're going to take a, a quick break here, uh, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Una pierna que respiran, veneno de serpiente, por el camino del viento, voy soplando aguardiente. El día había comenzado entusiasmado y alegre. Dice, <risa> pasaporte. ¿Dónde va por ahí, Milario? Con esta noche tan fea. ¿Usted no se anima? Mire cómo está el camino. Anegadito. No, hombre, ¿cómo? El camino es lo de menos. Lo importante es llegar. Tengo tu antídoto.
sin rumbo, la energía negativa yo la derrumbo con mis pezuñas de cordero. Me propuse a recorrer el continente entero, sin brújula, sin tiempo, sin agenda, inspirado por las leyendas, por historias empaquetadas en lata, por los cuentos que la luna relata. Aprendí a caminar sin mapa, a irme de caminata, sin comodidades, sin lujo, protegido por los santos y los brujos. Aprendí a escribir cabronerías en mi libreta y con un That was Pal Norte by Calle 13. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I am your host, Amba Gagarian, joined by my co-host, John Tarleton, here on WBAI 99.5 FM. And quickly, before we jump into our very exciting third segment, uh, just want to shout out the beautiful station that is, uh, you know, allowing us to broadcast across the airwaves, not only in the city, into Jersey, into Long Island, radical media, independent media. And uh, as always, we could use some support. And as always, I'm going to put it to you like this, because if you've heard me make this argument before and you haven't done it yet, I don't know. Maybe here's another opportunity. Today's today. Can, can you give us like, can you can you miss out on three slices of pizza this month? Ten bucks a month. Give us a twenty dollar, thirty dollar donation because you're feeling you're feeling good today. Please donate. You can go online to W donate. Actually, John, can you help me with the phone number and the website? Oh, sure. Uh, 212-209-2950. I kind of got that etched in my uh, forehead almost. At this yeah, he's point. better than I am. 212-209-2950. Also online, give number two, uh, WBAI.org. You can sign up there to make a one-time contribution or become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. You get all sorts of awesome benefits. You also get the, the satisfaction and the immense uh, karma of being someone who's supporting and helping keep this station on and all the voices you hear on this show and all the other shows uh, throughout the week. So, yeah. Yep. Do it. 212-209-2950. Thank you. And, uh, and we're going to go now to uh, one of our guests, you know, we are doing on the ground in the field, independent media, and we love to talk to people who are doing the same thing in their communities um, in different ways. So on Friday, news broke that buses of asylum seekers have been arriving at Port Authority from Texan border towns sent by Texan Governor Greg Abbott, um, who's been basically sending migrants to quote-unquote sanctuary cities, Washington, D.C., and here in New York City, without sufficient food, water, and medical assistance, say those that are supporting those asylum seekers when they arrive. And let's just be clear, asylum seeker is just another word for refugee. Um, Since Friday, two buses carrying asylum seekers have arrived from Texas with a total of 68 passengers, But this new, these new arrivals are a part of a much larger wave of at least 4,000 migrants who've been sent from Texas in the last two months. We're going to go here to a sound clip of Governor Abbott explaining, explaining some of his perspective. On Fox. Public officials across the country, they do need to realize the magnitude of the chaos created by Biden's open border policies. Listen, we're full in the state of Texas. Our communities are overrun. And I started busing people to Washington, D.C., when local officials could not handle the number of people that had come across our border. They signed a waiver of agreement when they board that bus. Maybe he could take a bus 
just like the migrants. You get the full experience, the bus, the free cell phone, the whole thing, and maybe you'd have a better perspective. So at the end, that was the Fox announcer um, joking about Adams coming down to the border and taking a bus with all the fine luxuries the migrants are enjoying. Um, so we are joined by Adra, Adriana sorry, Phillips, founder of South Bronx Mutual Aid and a member of the New York City Ice Watch Network, which does great work in neighborhoods all over the city. Um, she has been on the ground with others greeting buses as they arrive from Texas. Adriana, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go right into it. Uh, respond to those remarks and, and, um, especially his claims on open border, on the fact that people are not being forced, et cetera. Sure. So our understanding is they are being forced onto these buses. Actually, this is a human trafficking condition. Um, many of the people that have been sent elsewhere, whether it's to Washington, D.C., you know, and they may eventually arrive in New York City or directly to New York City, they were not sent here by their own volition. They were put on a bus and they were sent here. And, you know, there's often a degree of, being disoriented as anyone would if they were kidnapped and human trafficked and sent somewhere that they had no idea where they were going, right? So when we receive folks as they're arriving in the city, it's clear they've not had adequate medical care. It's clear they've not had adequate food. They may have had one meal across several days. There are people that arrive already that have, you know, need for immediate medical care and they are not arriving with the luxuries that particular uh, comments or, or the governor seems to think they are experiencing, um, you know, and in many cases, what's alarming is that there's not necessarily a plan in place yet on what to do. We're intercepting people as they're stepping off of buses, um, along with other folks like us that are on the ground, that as soon as we're alerted to buses arriving at all different hours, um, we're sprinting into action like others are to receive people and try to make sure that they know where they are, that they're safe, that they, you know, first of all, if there are any pressing needs with um, food or medical care, that those immediate pressing needs are handled. And then from there, trying to make sure that we can get them to a respite space where they can rest, eat, you know, use a restroom. And then eventually, you know, there are some folks that they did not want to be in New York City at all. So trying to connect them back to where it is that they're hoping to go see if there's any family to connect them to somewhere or friends or support networks. And then if not helping them get assistance, because we're not going to leave them stranded once they're here, if they, if, you know, they have no other options. Right. And can you elaborate on this a little further? I mean, uh, coming to Port Authority can be overwhelming. uh, Even if you, uh, that's your intended destination to just be dropped there after a three day bus ride, not even knowing where you are. Uh, Absolutely. And it's not just Port Authority. I just want to clarify, you Mm -hmm. know, it's people are being dropped by buses at several different locations. Um, You know, we have the impression that they may be arriving in New York under additional means beyond what I just described, Um, being sent here forcibly. And it's not just from Texas. They're being sent here from other places at the border, too, from other states as well. So, you know, we have the impression and understanding that people are being sent here by several states. the border Mexico. And, you know, they're, they're arriving all over, like I said, at different hours and thanks to mutual aid networks and, you know, immigrant rights groups. Thankfully, we're being alerted to things that are happening. Um, that way, as much as possible, you know, groups like ours are, are on the ground at all hours trying to intercept and, and support people. Um, certainly until there is a, 
better plan in place, right, that should be happening uh, to to offer relief for people, as you mentioned, who are refugees who have been trafficked here. Right. And, and tell us a little bit about who these asylum seekers are, basically, where are they coming from um, and briefly how they how they get to the border in the first place? Sure. I mean, there are a lot of different circumstances for people. Um, we've seen a lot of people that are arriving from South American countries and they've, you know, come through several countries like over time, you know, through South America, they're fleeing violence, they're, you know, they're fleeing political persecution and they're, you know, they're making their way here across several countries until they arrive um, at the Texas border. So, you know, something I want to clarify that seems to be a misconception in the news. These are people that were released into the United States. So, you know, there's a credible reason that it was believed that they could be released to their own recognizance, right, to pursue an asylum case. Um, you know, they have immigration paperwork that reflects that. So, you know, the concern is they definitely need to be somewhere for a, a check-in in, in immigration hearings. And the reason why I mentioned trafficking is because they did not desire to come to New York and the bulk of their immigration hearings are not in New York. So they were bused from a border location to New York, but they may have an immigration hearing in a state on the other side of the country. So this seems to be part of a, a wider tactic, right, to to cause havoc or to, you know, force people into situations that would cross them on the wrong side of, you know, of what their of what their immigration uh, papers dictate um, because they did not intend to be here. You know, and as soon as people are coming off the bus, many of them are telling us we've got to go here. You know, this is where I have a hearing. Did you did you ask to go there? Do you have support there? No, you don't. Oh, boy. Right. So this is also, um, you know, this is a crisis because there's also a legal aspect to this. Right. That we we are jumping into action to try to connect people um, to be able to have legal support because this is, you know, (laughs) this is inhumane on many different levels. Seems to be human rights violations on many different levels. But we're doing everything we can to ensure that people have direct support because like we said we're we're not seeing a a coordinated uh systemic response to receive them that's uh ready to be provided as yet right and, and you touched on it a little bit and, and we could use the whole show to talk about this but the um immigrants are often sort of juggled around right as these political pawns that happened with new jersey um with the politicians in new jersey flipping flopping on whether or not they wanted to have detention centers in their stay and people are literally being moved around sometimes dying as a result of this um but that's yeah the immigration system in the u.s is is made to not work and i encourage everyone listening to read up on that um if you don't already know but uh uh talk a little bit about uh what your sort of reception tactics, greeting tactics, welcoming tactics have been on the ground as a sort of um, maybe like anti-establishment, people-oriented group, right? Bronx Mutual Aid, pretty rad. That compared to the city and sort of the liberal NGO complex. Um, What has Adams done or not done. We know he was there hugging the migrants as they arrived on Saturday. I think you yeah, may- I mean, his team forced their way into a photo op and shoved some of the volunteers out of the way so they could take that picture. Um, I'm not sure what other solutions that provided, to be honest, nor do I find that to be appropriate. Um, 
because it wasn't like his team was there with any other solutions. They showed up and they shoved volunteers out of the way so that they could take a picture next to volunteers that asked not to be photographed. Um, so there was a lot of lack of consent that happened in that particular interaction that they choose to showcase. Um, beyond that again, you know, and, and I want to be clear, like we are expecting for city agencies to do their job, right? They're paid tax dollars. So we, we expect accountability because New York does have an obligation to offer shelter, right? If, if we're going to say what the law is, like the law is that everyone can be offered shelter here, right? You have a right to shelter in New York City. And so part of our work as we greet people and receive them is also guiding them through what their rights are when they're here and helping them that if they have no other options, helping guide them into, you know, intake systems, you know, right. and I want to take a moment to okay. unite struggles because this is, you know, significant. Yeah, we're 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 down to probably about our last thirty seconds or so here. Um, actually, about fifteen seconds. Can you just tell us where people can find more information about your group and and if they want to get involved or support what you're doing? Absolutely, they can connect with us on Instagram at South Bronx Mutual Aid or at NYC Ice Watch. And, and like I said, there's so much more to talk about, Adriana. We didn't mean to cut you off there at the end. We will continue to follow this on the Indie and talk about how the struggle between the migrants arriving and the houseless New Yorkers um, is very, very connected and how we should use shelter in the human way in this city. Thank you so much for joining us, um, and thanks for the work you're doing. Thank you, Reggie Johnson, our board operator. And we're going to leave it at that with Going Away by Elizabeth Cotton, another song about migration if you understood the last one thanks folks bye thank you Spends all of my money, then you think that's fun.